Good morning. Y'all doing well? Okay, there he is. He is. The rest of us will get there, hopefully. Um, love that song, great song, as you listen to the words. Um, and the thing I like about that song is how practical it is. It talks about our voice. It talks about our intellect. It talks about our skills and talents. Talking about our hands and our feet. It, Take all of me. And sometimes we'll sing that on a Sunday and we'll sing it in like a spiritual realm and then we'll go out and we'll live, live anything but in our practical realm. Spirituality is like oxygen. You, you breathe it in and it doesn't just go to your lungs and stays in your lungs and you breathe it out. It, it goes to every part of your body. If your brain ceases to get oxygen, that's going to affect some things. If your foot ceases to get oxygen, that's going to affect some things. It all affects. And so we need to take our spirituality and we need to take God's word and we need to apply it practically in our lives. And as we begin to do that, we're going to see our actions change. And every action is either commending the faith that we have or it's repelling the faith that we have. Like it's either representative or it's misrepresentative. And so that's going to be our goal today is to get a little more representative with the practicalities of our faith. And to do that, we're going to look at Jeremiah 29. We'll put the verses on the screen if you don't want to turn there. If you have your Bible, turn there. We won't even really need to turn there in terms of Jeremiah 29.11 because it's probably inscribed in the front of your Bible or you've received a gift card or a, you know, a, a Hallmark card with this in it. Like This is the verse that we all know. Like If you wanted to get a verse tattooed on your body, this would be a good one. If you're small like me, you'd have to get it like in a sash around our torso, because it's a long verse, but we all know this verse. We all love this verse. This verse fills us with hope when we're down. Like, this is a great verse, and it says this, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Welfare is the key word there. And we read that, and we like that verse, and it affirms us, and it encourages us, but the thing is that we, that we miss, that verse is hitched in context to the verses preceding it. And what God is doing here is he is reassuring the people. He comes down and he gives a command, and it's a tough command, or it's one they're kind of uncomfortable with. And he says, hold on, don't worry. This is all part of the plan. This is all part of the hope. This is all part of the welfare. The thing is, if we unhitch that verse from its context, it loses its substance. It needs to stay with the rest of it because he's telling us how to live, and in living that way, that's where we get the welfare that he's talking about. It's in the action that he's talking about proceeding. And so that's why I want to talk about it. And I also want to talk about it is because, one, it relates so closely to Christ. I mean, the Old Testament all relates to Christ, but this one jumps off the page. This is Christ. Like, you're going to be able to see it. And since it's so Christ, it becomes super relevant to us and our day-to-day practicalities of life. And the reason it does that is because it is addressing exiles. And does anyone out here feel like an exile? I mean, not literally an exile. You probably have, you know, your citizenship here and everything like that. You're not actually an exile, but do you look around at the world and feel like an exile? I was at dinner um, about a week ago, and there was an older man there who is a staunch liberal. He's a Democrat through and through, and he, after the prayer, we give, he begins giving a political speech. So there in the first five minutes of dinner, we got religion. We got politics, and I wanted to just go around and ask everyone how much money they made so we could hit finances and just have the trifecta of a good dinner party. But he begins talking about politics and Fox and Friends and just bashing on all everything conservative, he's bashing on it. And then he says the problem with, with Republicans is this, 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 and this, yet they have all the power. 
To which his conservative daughter pipes up and says, no, 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 the problem with liberals is this, 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 and this, yet they have all the power. And you see what's happening there just in two people's worldviews. Both of them were on different sides of the same coin, yet both felt like exiles. How can the liberal feel like an exile at the same time as the conservative feeling like an exile? Socioeconomically, it's the same thing. We all yell, middle class, middle class, middle class. What about the middle class? What about the middle class? Because the middle class feels like exiles. We feel like we've been forgotten, neglected. You go talk to a neighborhood rich guy, and what does he say? Oh, you guys got it easy. What about me? You should see what I'm giving Uncle Sam. And then the poor people are saying, we're eating dirt sandwiches. What about us? And everyone feels like an exile because we live in a fragmented society. Globalization, technology, it's all attributed to this, but it's created this melting pot. And there are great things about living in a melting pot, but one of the downfalls of living in a melting pot is you're going to be made to feel like an exile. And if you're out here today and you are a Christian, which probably a lot of us profess, you should feel like an exile. If you don't feel like an exile and you're a Christian, you're doing something wrong. We're going to talk about that. Jesus tells us that we are not of this world. We're in it, but we're not of it. He tells us we're strangers and aliens. We are strangers in a strange land. So you should feel like an exile. And that is what's going on in Jeremiah 29. See, the the children of Israel, who we've heard of probably, they are God's people. They were God's chosen race. They are his chosen people in the Old Testament. And then there are the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were, were clever. They were smart. And they were the world power. They'd go around conquering people, but they had it figured out. Through the history of mankind, there's been ways to conquer other people groups. Three different ways. The first way is by expelling and exterminating them. Okay? A great example of this is World War II and what Hitler was doing preceding that. He targeted the Jews as the problem with society. The Jews were the scourge of society. The Jews were his people's enemies. So what did he do? He expelled them into concentration camps and he exterminated them by murdering them. And there are tons of moral problems with that. But the, the method, methodological problem with that is simply the people who are friends with the Jews then become your enemies. You create enemies by doing that, by expelling people and exterminating people. And so that's why Great Britain rose up and started fighting them. That's why the United States got involved, because, hey, that's inhumane. You can't do that. And so he created enemies, he created a war, and he eventually lost. The second way that people usually go about dealing with their enemies is to make subjects of the people, to put them under your thumb and to control them. We saw this in the 1700s. We were the British colonies. The Union Jack hung on every tavern. They put the the picture of the king up. They made us house and quarter their soldiers. They put laws on us. They put taxation always in place to remind us, you belong to us. You are a British colony. Don't forget it. You are a British colony. And what happens in that form of conquering? Rebellion. People dressed up like Native Americans dumped tea in a harbor. There was militias formed. There was guerrilla warfare. And then eventually there was a big revolution, a war, which they lost. And so that's the downfall of that. There's rebellion. You see this all throughout history. You look at any war, any kind of conflict, you see this. The Babylonians were smart because they figured out a third way. And this is the way they operated. They'd go town to town, city to city. They'd conquer, and then they'd take the brunt of the people with them. It's brilliant. They'd leave a group behind who was the remnant. Could the remnant do anything? Would they start a revolution or do an uprising? Well, no, because there's a hostage situation in place. You guys want to cause us trouble? We got your sons and daughters living with us. We have your brothers and sisters right here. Go ahead and make trouble. See what happens to them. So it it quiets them. And then with the people they have there, instead of exterminating them, instead of being cruel to them, instead of whipping them, instead of doing any of that, what they did is called assimilation. 
Welcome to Babylon. Here's your new name. Here's your education. Join our society. No, they gave them like passports. They got them all the paperwork. They let them have jobs. They let them have food. Like, you're Babylonian now. And so here are the Israelites. They get marched into Babylon. And they land into this melting pot of different ethnicities, different races, different religions. And it's a hostile environment, contrary to God's will. They're looking around, and it's, this isn't God's law. This isn't how God wants man to act. And look at all this is going on. What are we supposed to do as exiles here? The morals are different. The politics are different. The religion is different. They have all kinds of gods here. How are we supposed to act? And I think we need to act, ask that same question. How are we supposed to live out our existence as exiles? How do we live when the morning news appalls us? Do any of you ever listen to the news? My wife always gets up way earlier than me, and I lay in bed, and I can hear the news in the next room. And I sit there if I can't sleep, and I'm like, what is this world coming to? You ever ask that? Feels like it's getting worse. You feel like you don't mesh with everything that's going on, the books that are out, the movies that are out, and you're like, what is this world coming to? How do we live in that place? How do we live when the legislation of the land doesn't match the law of the Lord? Because we've been there too, right? You hear the new laws that come out or this law change or this legal change and everyone's kind of celebrating it and you're like, what? I don't agree with that. I don't feel like that's what God wants. Like, how do we live when that happens? And that's what the Israelites wanted to know. Like, how do we live when all this stuff is going around us that we're not for? How do you want us to live, God? Earnestly, they wanted to know. And what I want to do first today is I want to look at the two wrong ways the Israelites were living. Because it's the same wrong ways that many of us are living. And the first of those happens most clearly in Jeremiah 28, 11. There's a false prophet, and the false prophet goes around and telling the people, they say, how do we live, how do we live, how do we live? And he says, this is how you live. In two years, God's going to break the yoke of the king over you. You're going to be free, and you're going to get to return home. So this is how you live. Don't worry about them. They're sinning. They're pagan, they're idolaters, we're not. Let's make a holy huddle over here and forget them. We'll live across the river, we'll, we'll build up our club, we'll build up our team, we'll build up our church, we'll build up our clique, and just stiff arm everyone else. Because we're going to be gone in two years. And hopefully, at the end of that two years, God's going to pour out his wrath on those sinners. Like that's what they were ruled by. Their hearts weren't ruled by peace, mercy, and love. Their hearts were ruled by judgment and wrath. And many of our hearts are ruled by that same thing. We just want to isolate because our morals are a little different. We want to isolate because we have different beliefs. We want to isolate and mock people with different beliefs than us and just build up our own little thing, build up our own little club because they're going to get theirs and we can't wait till they do. The thing is, we're too small for wrath and justice. Every time we've tried that in mankind, we've gotten it wrong. That's God's domain. That's why Jesus was saying things like times and dates aren't for you. Because at the end of the, the age, God's going to judge everyone. He's saying you don't worry about the judging part. You don't worry about getting everyone you know, lined up because you're going to mess that up. Here's what you worry about. Love. Here's what you worry about. Being nice to people. Treating people with kindness. Treating people how you want to be treated. Like he made it so simple for us, but we made it hard because we'd rather just be vengeful and see people get what's coming to them. There's a famous uh, postmodern theory that came out of France that I think is just saturated in truth, and it says this. 
What man does is man creates an identity for himself that makes him feel good about himself. I think we can all affirm that. All of us, we try and create this identity that makes us feel good about ourselves. And then it goes on further. It says, and then man hates everyone who doesn't have that identity. He builds it up as his identity, and his identity becomes what is right. So everyone who doesn't have that identity is thus wrong, and so we can hate them. A silly example would be if I become a fitness fanatic. I get the latest and greatest running shoes. I get all into fitness. I'm running marathons. I'm running 5Ks. I'm doing all this fitness, which there's nothing wrong with doing fitness, but all of a sudden my identity gets tied in with this fitness. I'm fitness mat, and I get all these fitness friends, and we're all fitness-minded, and we all talk about calories and carbs and whatever else fitness people talk about. You can tell I'm not really one. This is so hypothetical. But we get all this fitness-minded stuff, and what do we begin doing? If your identity is wrapped in it, and you become so fitness-minded, you know what happens? You begin to disdain the people at McDonald's. You begin to hate the people who are obese. You don't run marathons? Hmm. You begin to be haughty about your fitness because it becomes a part of you prideful about your fitness. And that example doesn't seem all that extreme, but when we put it on the church, it gets pretty extreme because what we do is we do that exact thing except with morality. And we weaponize morality. We have the insight to all these issues. This is how people should vote. This is how people should live. This is how people should do it. So we hate everyone who doesn't operate like our little church does. We weaponize it. We hold it against the people who are lost out there and confused because they are lost and confused because our morals become part of our identity. And if we have good morals, the thing we have to realize is we don't have good morals because of us. We have good morals because of God. So why are we taking pride in that? And why are we using that as a weapon against other people in the Babylon in which we live? We get so tied up in our issues becoming who we are. And it limits us. And instead of being the church of Christ, Instead of being a church of love, instead of becoming Christ's body out in the community, you know what we become? The church of behavior modification. Man, if we can just get that person to vote the right way, then they'll be in. If I can get that person cleaned up a little bit, then they can come to church. And if I have like six more interventions with them, then they might be ready for the G word, gospel. I got to get them primed first. I got to get them ready. And that's what the Israelites were doing. They're tribal. It's, all of, it's us versus them. It's us versus them. It's us versus them. That was their mentality with the Babylonians. And that's our mentality often in our Babylon. And it's not supposed to be that way. And we'll address that in a second. The second thing we do wrong is exactly what the Babylonians wanted the Israelites to do wrong. We assimilate. We assimilate. When in Rome, live as the Romans live, right? Babylonians gave them a new name. They gave them education, and many of the Israelites were looking around saying, I got my new name, I got my education. They're doing sexually heinous things over here. They're doing brutal things over here. They're doing things that are against God's word over here. But you know what? I'm here. I might as well go for it. It's easier. I'm tired of feeling different. And so in that way, we just become Babylonian. In our, in our culture, what is that? The culture screams that truth is relative, that there's no absolute truth. Okay, the right and wrong, it's all just a big gray area. That life's insignificant. We're all just evolved. You know, life's not that important. Like, that's what our culture is screaming at us. And if we become Babylonian, we just take that and say, I'm going get to in, get in queue, get in line, and just live that way. So what we have to determine is, what does God say that we do? Because we're in the same spot as the Israelites here. Many of our churches are clamoring for, God, how are we supposed to live? This place is messed up. Look around. 
turn on the news. This place is messed up. How do we live? So I love what God tells the Israelites. He does it in 29.4. This is Jeremiah writing, God's prophet. So God's like whispering this in Jeremiah's ear. Not literally, but he's, he's saying it to Jeremiah. Jeremiah's typing it out on an email. He's still in Jerusalem. He had sinned. He sends it to the exiles who are in Babylon. They're waiting by their computers to get it. They get it. They forward it around. All the captives have this. And they're wanting this. They're wanting this information. What is Jeremiah? What is God's man? What is God himself going to tell us how to live? The practicalities of our life. How are we going to live? It begins in verse 4. 29.4 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It's an introduction that we would usually skip, but do you see how important it is? What is he reminding them of? Whom I have sent. He's saying, hey, the world thinks you got conquered and taken. You might think you got conquered and taken. You might think you're kidnapped. You might think the Babylonians won. No. I sent you. I sent you there. It's an important reminder for us, too, because some of us bemoan the time we live in and wish for the glory days. It's not going to happen. God didn't say, okay, I want you to be born in 1983, and you're born, and then he says, oh, I meant 1883. Ah, the nine, it was fuzzy. He knew. He wanted us to live in this fractured society. Hate it or not, it's God's. God knew you were going to be born when you were born. He knew you were going to live in this time. He knew you were going to live in this place. He knew what was going to be going on in the world. He knew all the sin that was going to be running rampant. And he knew. He's reminding them, I'm in control. Would you quit just acting crazy and calm down? I sent you. I know what's going on in Babylon. I created Babylon. I know what's going on there. I sent you there. So listen to what I have to say. And then he goes on. They're thinking this is going to be like real abstract spiritual stuff. And this is what God says. Build houses and live in them. And plant gardens and eat their produce. He says, move in. The Israelites were living like across the river in tents because they thought in two years, hellfire and brimstone was going to rain down on the people and they're going to get to leave. So why invest? Why join the Elks Club? Why sign your kid up for T-ball? You're not going to be living there long. We're going to get out of here in two years. Stay as distant as you can from those people because we're going to be gone. Don't get too close. My wife and I are getting ready to move. We're going to be renters. Okay, what does that say about us? Other than maybe our economic status, it says that we're moving to a place where we don't know where we want to live. We don't know how long we're going to be there. We want the freedom to be able to leave if God wants us to leave. Like, we're not sure yet, so we're going to rent. And what God is saying here is, I signed the mortgage. Like, move in. It's permanent. Build a house because you're going to be there a while. And even if you're not, I still want you to move in. Plant deep roots. And that's the thing he's saying to all of us. Move in. Don't live metaphorically across the river and like holy huddle. Move in. Get in there. Get ingrained in the society where God has sent you. Get close. And then he says, plant crops and eat them. A novel idea. Because here's what they were doing. They built their little tribe. They built their little clique. And they wanted nothing to do with the Babylonians. They wanted to talk bad about them. They wanted to rail on them how messed up society was. And then they wanted to go and get their food. And then they wanted to go and get their jobs, and they'd smile at them, but inwardly they think, eh. And God's saying, don't be a leech on society. Don't say one thing about it and then try and get something from it. Serve it. Help it. Don't be an anchor. All right? You're going to end up being a rudder, and you're going to end up being the wind and the sails, but don't be an anchor right now. 
Get invested. Build a house and get a job is what he tells them to do. And they're like, oh, I didn't think he was going to say that, but okay. It might not have been what they were hoping to hear, but that's what they heard. And then he goes on and says, take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. So build houses, plant crops, and then, hey, you're a child of God, Israelite. Find another child of God, Israelite, and get married. And then have a son and raise that son or raise that daughter as a child of God. And if you, if you train him up in his youth, he won't depart from it later, all that. When he's ready, marry him off to someone else. Tell them to have babies and keep growing and multiplying. Why? So they could take over? So they could win the election? No. And so there'd be more of them so they could have more influence. So they could love more people. So they could touch more lives. And that should be all of our mindset as an exile. You might say, I'm the only Christian person at my work. Amen. Praise God. He put you there. And the goal is that by the end of this year, there'd be two. And then four. And then eight. Because it's multiplication. That's what he wants. We're always going to be exiles till he deems us not to be exiles. Probably when we die or when Christ returns. Until that time, we're just supposed to multiply up. Pass on the seed of faith. So he's telling them, you want to move in. You want to build houses. Don't assimilate. You're still different. Hang on to that difference. You're still different. You don't assimilate, but multiply. Realize you're different, honor that difference, and multiply your lives. Live, work, yet stay in the faith. And they're all like, yeah, we can do all that. That's all pretty good advice. That's practical. We can do that. And then he blows the doors off the new houses they just built. He gives them a verse that they're like, uh uh-uh, can't go there. Verse 7 says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And they said, do you know where you sent us? This is Babylon, God. Seek the welfare of that mess. Like, do you see what they're doing? They don't honor you. You might not know this, but who they're bowing down to, it's not you. Maybe you had a clerical error up there or something. I don't know, but they're not about you. You want us to seek their welfare? They're heinous. They're, the laws they're passing are, are disgusting. Like, the things they're doing are awful. You want us to seek their welfare, and then he goes on, he says, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will have welfare. What's the word he uses in 11? He's going to bring us welfare. And then he's saying that your welfare that I'm going to bring you is tied in with the welfare of Babylon. That's getting pretty heavy. And especially when you tie in what the word welfare means, what it translates from. And it's the Hebrew word shalom. We don't have a word that accomplishes what shalom accomplishes. The closest thing we have in English would be like uh, the worst racial slur you can think of or the worst cuss word, the type of word that you say and the whole room gets quiet and filled with negativity. Shalom is like that, but on the positive side. It is a charged up word. And what it means um, directly, and it's mind-blowing, a total flourishing in every realm or dimension. You're supposed to seek the total flourishing in Babylon in every realm and dimension. Socially, there's a melting pot. There's a lot of different races, ethnicities going on here. You're not supposed to put incendiary comments on Facebook. You're not supposed to be a rabble rouser, a busybody. You're not supposed to get people at at their throats. They're confused people. Don't make them more confused. What you're supposed to do is go stand in the gap and bring social peace. Shalom. Bring people together, love them, and have them love each other. Shalom. That's what you're supposed to seek economically. Shalom. And and some Israelite probably raised his hand and said, hold on, my boss isn't a child of God. My boss isn't a Christian. I don't see any criteria there. 
Show up to work. Be faithful. Stay long if you have to. Shalom for your boss. And you say, I'm an employer. My employees, they're drunk all the time. They're the worst people. There's no criteria. Shalom. Seek their shalom anyway. It doesn't say evaluate their morals and then seek it. It just says seek the shalom of the city. Your shalom is tied with their shalom. So what we're supposed to look at, we're not supposed to have this mentality that it's us versus them. We're not supposed to have this mentality that it's us with them. We're supposed to have the mentality that it's us for them. We're not supposed to guard our difference and take our difference and say, hey, we're Cape Bible Chapel, or hey, we're non-denominational, or hey, we're Christian, or hey, we're this, hey, we believe in this issue, hey, we're Republicans. We're not supposed to have this little holy huddle here and guard all our differences like we did something to earn them. Also, we're not supposed to go into the city and just punt our differences and forget all about it. What we're supposed to do is we're supposed to take the difference, which is Christ, and use it in every realm and dimension. Use it in our workplaces. Use it in our economy. Use it in our finances. Use it, like the song says, as we sing. Use it as we use our hands. Use it as we use our feet. Use the difference. Daniel is a great example of this. Daniel was an exile, and he was influenced by this letter. And Daniel was in Babylon. He got a Babylonian name. He got a Babylonian education. And the one story that we all remember about Daniel that shapes our whole theology on this is what? What's the Daniel story? Someone tell me. Lions Den. We all know it. I mean, that's the Sunday school thing, and it's a great story. Don't get me wrong. It's a beautiful story. And what happens in the Lions Den story? He's told he can't pray to Yahweh, and he says, eh, I got to pray to Yahweh. He's my God. I'm going to pray to the Lord. They say, no, you can't. Yeah, I, I, I have to, so I'm going to. And notice as he stands apart and he doesn't assimilate, does he get a bullhorn out? Does he do a sit-in? Does he, you know, get a petition signed? Does he draw all this attention? He quietly refuses. He's not trying to make it all about Daniel. He's not trying to get power and influence. He's just saying, hey, I serve the Lord. That's going to be the way it is. I'm going to quietly continue to serve the Lord, and quietly I submit myself. You can do whatever you want with me. And so they put him in the lion's den. And it's a great picture of purity, and it's a great picture of refusing to assimilate. And sometimes we read that, and we're like, we got to be like Daniel. we got to kick in doors, and we got to, you know, be crazy, and we got to sign this, and we got to... We got to look at the other great story of Daniel too to get a complete full circle theology of it, and that's Daniel two. What happens in Daniel two is the king has a dream, a crazy dream. I'm glad I'm not in Daniel's shoes because it was a wild dream, and he pulls all his advisors in, all the wise men, all the government officials. Like these are the sharp guys driving the culture. He pulls them all in. He says, "Can you interpret the dream?" And they say, "No." So the king says, "Every wise man, every wise man in Babylon is sentenced to death." Okay, this should be a home run for the Israelites. Like the guys who are passing the the heinous laws, gone. The guys who are teaching in heinous ways, gone. The guys who are, you know, allowing the sexually explicit culture, gone. The guys who are defeating God's people, gone. Like the guys who are the movers and shakers of a culture that is contrary to God, all gone. There should be a party. There should be a parade. The Christians should be fired up. To put it in our context, if any of you out here are like really staunch, diehard conservatives, you're a Republican through and through, that's, man, politically I'm Republican, that's who I am. I'm going to go out in my car, I'm going to listen to Rush Limbaugh on the way home. Go Republicans, we're doing it. And I told you before you left church, I said, hey, guess what? Did you hear the news? No, I was listening to you teach. And I'm like, well, I have secret news filters that come in my mind. I heard it. Um, all the Democrats who are in office have been banished to Russia. Gone. Not allowed to serve in our government anymore. I don't know why, but it happened. They're all gone. How would you feel? 
Or vice versa, if you're liberal and you're told as, a, as you're leaving, I say, hey, all the, all the Republicans, gone. Be fired up. Or to put it on another scope, we have students here, we have college students. There's a lot of anti-theistic professors in the college world. I mean, they're driving our universities, they're driving our thought. That's why so many high schoolers and junior hires, they end up going to college when the time comes. And what do they do? They walk away from the faith because they assimilate, because these professors are telling them their faith isn't real, telling them there is no God, telling them there's no absolute truth, and they just jump right into that. What if we told, at the end of the day, we said, hey, all those people are banned from ever teaching the U.S. again. Onward, Christian soldier. We would be so pumped up. We'd be tweeting it. We'd be fired up. It'd be great news. And this is how Daniel should feel right now. Daniel should be, yes. All the wise men, all these political guys, the inner circle, the cabinet of the king, the most powerful guys who are moving and shaking this godless society are going to die. And Daniel goes in and says, I can interpret your dream. So the king says, okay, that's going to put a target on you and your guys if you say that. He goes, I will do that, but don't kill the wise men. Don't kill them. And the king had to think in that moment, why would you put your life on the line for these guys who are contrary to your God? contrary to your beliefs, contrary to your voter record, contrary to everything you stand for. You're standing in the gap for them willing to die. And it's because Daniel was all about shalom. He sought peace. He wasn't seeking wrath. He was seeking peace for the culture because, and this is the problem we have with this, he trusted God to take care of their behaviors, to take care of their externals. That's on God. That's not on me. That's on God. I'm going to stand in the gap. I'll allow God to deal with those men how he sees fit. I'll allow God to change them. And the great lesson this brings to mind for us is this, and we can take this one home, this can be your application, that if you trust God and you really go about seeking peace, you can have this mindset, I don't have to fix everyone. I don't have to fix everyone. I don't have to get a guy more of this or less of this before I can love him. I don't have to get this person up to a certain moral code. Like, they have to take a moral aptitude test. If you get an 80 out of 100, then I can be your friend. If you get an 80 out of 100, then I can be Christ to you. And if you get an 80 out of 100, then maybe after a few interventions, you'll be ready for the gospel. That's not the way it should operate, and that's too often the way it does. And that's an atrocious affront to what the gospel is, where Christ did the exact same thing as Daniel did with God on this end. All of us as sinners, the drivers of a sin, sinful, godless culture on this end, and Jesus Christ stood and said, don't kill them, God. Pour that wrath on me for them. I'll take their place. And God had to be like, Jesus, what? they're not like you. They wouldn't vote the same way as you. The morals aren't the same. Jesus' answer is shalom. His message was reconciliation. He did not come to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And in the same way, we should not go into the world, to the Babylon, to condemn Babylon. God will take care of that. We should go into Babylon hoping that some will be saved. We don't know who, but some will. And I love, too, that God ordained all of this. He had the Israelites in Babylon. He even chose geographically it to be Babylon. And throughout the Bible, Babylon is mentioned. And it's representative. It's a symbol. It's the city of Babylon, which equates to the city of man. The city of man is which all of us, all of us live in the city of man. The city of man is what governs the entire world. It's the city of man. And then Jerusalem is representative of the city of God, or the city of heaven. That's Jerusalem. So there are these two cities, and every single human being on earth is part of the city of man. And as soon as you become saved, you become a citizen of the city of God. You get this new passport. 
You're a new citizen of the city of God. And the city of God is supposed to dominate our thought life and our worldview and our actions. But many of us still live like we're in the city of man and like we are under its rule. And what does the city of man say? That life is all about power, prestige, money, fame. We're, we want to climb the human ladder, st- stepping on throats, shoulders, doesn't matter to get to the top, to get above our peers, to get above someone else, because we're all after the same things. It's dog-eat-dog. Dog. It's survival of the fittest. And we are all striving for the same things, which ultimately will never fulfill us. That's why the rich people, the billionaires, the millionaires, they say, they sit them down in interviews, and what's the question? How much more money do you really need? And what do they always say? One more dollar. You're never fulfilled in the city of man. And the mentality of the city man can be summarized by one three-letter word, get. Get, get, get. I have to get this for my family. I have to get this for myself. I have to get more fame. I have to get more money. I have to get more authority and power for the issue that I'm so staunchly an advocate of. And it drives us. And that's the reason why many of us can't get out of our own way and get over our own issues and love because it is in those very issues that we feel powerful. Well, if I give that issue up, if I don't judge other people based on that issue, I won't have power. I won't have authority. I won't have clout. And that's why so many in the church don't love. That's why so many in the church remain racist, remain bigots, because they have power in that. They can cast judgment in that. And it's hurting the church. There is a study in Germany, two studies, two universities, and they, they studied people's Facebook activity. Put them on like brain waves, heart waves, pulse rates, all that scientific stuff. I don't understand. They did that. And the people would just get on their Facebook account, look around at people's pictures, status updates, whatever else, and, and then they'd log off. And it was a startling number. It was in the 80 percentile of people when they logged off of Facebook, you know what they felt? Disturbed, depressed, anger. They call it Facebook envy. Because when you get on there, if you're operating under the city of man, what you're seeing is so-and-so's new car. And what's your thought? i got to get a better car. Oh, they got a new house. i got to build up my kingdom a little better. So-and-so got a new job. I wonder how much I, they make. I might have to ask for a raise. Like, I need to make more than that. Because we're all after the same things. And what we need to realize, as citizens of the city of God, power is had when power is not sought. And that's why an election won't deliver us. I mean, some, some believers get so down when an election doesn't go their way. And it's like, just live. Continue living. Continue loving. And I'm not saying we can't be political. I'm not saying we shouldn't be advocates of certain things. But it's like, God's in control still. It's not through power and influence that we're not going to become exiles. It's through God's ordained will that we won't be exiles. Again, that's going to be when we go to heaven. We're going to be exiles when we're in this world, so quit trying to fight against the yokes of being an exile. We're called to be exiles, so embrace being an exile well. Money won't deliver us. Influence will not deliver us. What's going to deliver us is realizing that we're part of the city of God. It's going to free you. It'll completely free you because what's the city of God mentality? You look at power. We're told that in Christ we have the power of the creator God in heaven living in us and through us. So why in the world would I seek power in the city of man when I have all the power the world can offer in my Savior? Money? I'm told that I have riches stored up in heaven. I'm told that I'm a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Co-heir means I get to share in his inheritance. He's the only son. I don't know of any others. He's the only one. I get to share that inheritance with him. 
Why would I seek more for myself in the city of man when I have everything in the city of God? Homes, building my own little kingdom, getting another home or some more boats or this or that. Why would I build up all that stuff when God tells me that I have a mansion in heaven? This here, yeah, this is just my summer home. You ought to see my eternal home. Jesus went away 2,000 years ago. He's been working on it ever since, and he's pretty good at stuff. He was a carpenter. Like, you should see my home in heaven. I don't need to strive for all this junk that everyone else is striving for because I already have it all in Christ. What about life itself? I need to get more time for myself. I need to get time away. I need to get time for my family. I need to get this, get this, get this. We're given life abundant in Christ. We're given eternal life. This is just a blip on a continuum that would stretch over and over and over again around the world. Eternity. This is just a blip. So why are we striving for it? See, what we have to realize as citizens in the city of God, we don't have to strive in the city of man anymore because we have it all. I had this lesson brought to me a few years ago. I got to go to Haiti right after the earthquake. At the time, I was jobless, and I was living in my mom's basement. So that was kind of on my mind. I was thinking, hey, I need to get a job when I get back. Hey, I need some money. Hey, I'm this. Hey, I'm that. I don't have anything. I'm poor. I'm, you know, just thinking of my life, and I was just kind of depressed about it until the plane touched down, and I took one step off of it. Buildings were rubble. Kids were dying in the streets. Sewage ran rampant all over the city. There was a million orphans. It's a small little country, and there's a million orphans there, and you could see them. They're right in front of you. And so was my mentality there in Haiti, I need to get more for myself? What land development can I make to make money? Hey, I, that kid's got money sticking out of his pocket. I'm going to pickpocket it. Like, I wasn't trying to get more. My mentality instantly became a city of God mentality because I realized, hey, I have everything. So I just started giving. I tried to serve. They say, hey, can you help us with this? No, I'm too good for that. Or no, I don't have time for that. No, I need some me time. No, I jump in and help. Because they needed it. If they knew that I had three square meals, their jaws would drop. If they knew the, the basement that I was living in, their jaws would drop. They were confused. They were lost. And I had it all. And so my city of God mentality became give, give, give. It's the only logical response for our lives when we realize we have it all in Christ. We need to quit striving for emptiness. We've been given complete fullness in him. And that's why our work matters. That's why our calling matters. That's why your vocation matters, because it's a platform. That's why your junior high class matters. That's why your college class matters, because it's something God called you into to be someone who gives. That's why in Matthew 5, Jesus looks out at his followers. What does he say? You're a city on the hill. The city he's talking about is the city of God. They're representatives, ambassadors of the city of God standing there on the hill. He said, you are light and you are salt. What does salt do? It tastes good and it preserves. So we're supposed to go into the world and we're supposed to make it taste a little better and we're supposed to preserve it, make it last a little longer. How do we do that? Shalom. Seeking shalom for people. And he says, you let your light shine. How? Good deeds. Through good deeds. That can be translated in the Greek as acts of service. Acts of service. So who are we serving? Are we serving our own get nature? Are we looking at the world and saying, how can I give? How can I give? How can I give? The early Christians understood this. The number one way that Christianity was spread in the couple hundred years after Christ left the earth, the number one way, death. The sword, the axe would be swinging towards their necks and they'd be singing hymns. Why? Because they realized, eh, take my head. I got abundant life. I got eternal life waiting for me. It's not that big a deal. Martyrdom to them became not that big a deal. Can you imagine? Because they realized, hey, our citizenship's up there. 
They can take my life down here. It doesn't matter. City of man. I don't want to be a citizen there anyway. It's ugly. It's depressing. I mean, I don't want to be a citizen here. I want to be a citizen there, so take it. That's all right. I'll willingly give up my citizenship here for the citizenship to come there. The second way was through plagues, which is even better. Notice, death and plagues. It wasn't by winning the election. In fact, the way Christianity was spreading like wildfire, the worst thing that happened to it in those early years of Christianity, you know what it was? When it became the official mandatory religion of Rome. When they won all the elections. When they lost their status as exiles. They lost their saltiness. But through the plagues, Greco-Roman cities were dying. Palsy, blisters, all this stuff was all over people. They were laying in the streets and they were dying. And the city of man mentality kicked in. And everyone started thinking this, I have to get out of here. I have to get away from that sick person. They locked their doors. They hoarded their food because they were scared there'd be a run on provisions. And they completely abandoned the sick and the dying in the streets. And there are eyewitness reports that say everyone did this except for the Christians who covered people and had them come in and live with them. And gave and gave and gave. Gave their provisions, gave their food away. People were leaving Oregon Trail style out of the city and saying, hey, are you guys coming? You're not sick. Are you coming? And the Christians would say, no, we're staying. Why? Their ethnicity didn't match the people they were helping. Their, their cultural influence didn't match the people. Their morals didn't match the people. But yet they wanted to stay. And so the other people started to, to look into this. And they said, is it about money? We're not making any money on this, so I guess it's not about that. Was it about Prestige, was it about power? Well, they're losing all their power. They're countercultural. We don't even like that they're helping all these people. It makes us look bad. So it wasn't that. Was it about morals? Were they only helping their tribe? Did they go up and say, do you have a Christian badge? Okay, you do. Let me help you. No. They're helping people who are far from God. They're helping people who are sinners, helping people who had lived lives of debauchery. So it wasn't that. Was it about life? Were they somehow finding the fountain of youth here? Well, a lot of the Christians were dying because they were contracting the illness of the people they were trying to help. So it wasn't even about that. And all of a sudden, these people who were watching this started asking internal questions. There's one scholar who said the conversion rate skyrocketed. He said there was a higher tendency for conversion. That's how he put it. Because the people couldn't help but convert to this thing because they couldn't understand it. And when we live lives where it's not understandable, that's when people start looking beyond us and seeing the cross. The inexplicable lifestyle is what the Christians had. Why? They weren't after life, money, power, prestige. What they were after was shalom. I love my city. I love the people here. Yeah, I hate some of the things they do. I hate that they are, are against God, but I love them. And like Daniel, I'm going to stand in the gap for them. And the ultimate person who stood in the gap was Jesus, wasn't he? Like Daniel's a great example. He's like an Old Testament type of Christ. Like you can look and you can see Christ in that what Daniel was doing, and Christ in this Jeremiah 29 instruction, because this is what Christ did. He came to the earth, and did he live out in the outskirts? Did he build his own little army? Did he shun all the people? No, he sat and ate with them. Whoa, Jesus, those are sinners. Yeah, I know, and I like them. I don't like what they're doing. I don't agree. I don't vote the same way as them necessarily, but I love them. Why? Well, because my citizenship's up there. I already have it all, so I'm just going to give them everything I got. If that's a joke here or there, if that's a sermon here or there, whatever it is, I'm going to give it to him. I'm going to give, he moved in. He didn't rent while he was here. He knew he wasn't going to be here long. He knew his mission was going to take him away, but he never rented. He moved in. And we look at him, he was the ultimate exile. You might say, well, man, 
I'm the only minority in my school. I'm the only Christian at my job. I'm the only person of, of this ethnicity in my neighborhood. Well, that puts you at like one in 30, one in 100, one in 1,000 maybe. Jesus was one in the rest of the world. He was the only sinless person to ever walk the face of the earth. The ultimate exile. And he wasn't after power because remember what happened? He was in the garden praying and uh, he, he could see the people coming to get him. There was like 600 of them. You could see their torches from miles away. He's looking out in the distance. He goes, up. Oh, they're coming to get me. They're coming to arrest me. Easily could have left, but he just stayed there quietly, ready to take his spot. He wasn't going to assimilate. He wasn't going to hoard what he had. He was, he was prepared to stay there and give it. People come up, and they're standing there. And what happens? Crazy Peter pulls out his sword and tries to cut someone's head off. He misses, and he chops off the guy's ear. And I like to think the thought that went on with Jesus when Jesus stopped him and said no and rebuked him was this, shalom. That's not what we're here for. We're not here to get. We're not here to, to save ourselves. We're not here to retain power. We're not here to fight these guys. We're here for peace. We're here for total flourishing in every dimension. And I know that's going to come through me, so shalom. And then inexplicably, he looked at the guy who had his ear cut off, who was getting ready to march him out, try him to be guilty, watch him get tortured. This guy who was so contrary to God, this guy who was a sinner, this guy who was so different, what did he do? He picked up the ear off the ground, stuck it back on his head, healed him, and said, shalom. How would you like to be that guy? Like 10 years later, you get an itch on your ear and you scratch it and you think, that was the guy I was going to kill and why did he fix me? Like he obviously knew what was coming. He knew I was against him, but yet it doesn't make any sense. And when you start seeing these questions that don't make any sense, the only answer becomes Christ and that's how he works and that's how he moves. Power's had when it's not sought. And then this great symbolism happened. We said there were two cities, city of man, city of God. City of God was Jerusalem. That's where Jesus was tried. And then what happened? Guilty, you know, give us Barabbas, torture, let's kill him. Where'd they take him? Outside the city. Before he was killed, he was exiled. He can't be here anymore. He can't be in the city of God. And, and it says that he was forsaken by God when he took all the sins of the world on him. So he was symbolically exiled, but he was also reality exiled. He became an exile for us. He exited the city so that we might come in. So we might walk into the city of Jerusalem with a passport. Now on that passport isn't a picture of me, isn't a picture of you, it's a picture of Christ. Because he stood in the gap for people who were far from him. And that's how you live as an exile. He was removed so we could come in so that we might gain the citizenship of the city of God and we might live differently in the city of man using our difference to give, give, give our lives away, our talents away, our gifts away. And in that, we think, oh, that sounds terrible. In that, you have shalom. That's the... 2911 Shalom, he's talking about that. Your welfare is tied to the welfare of those you are loving and serving and giving yourselves for, just as we were tied for Christ when he brought Shalom to us through reconciliation. And in that, it all matters. Your work matters, your Facebook activity matters, your Twitter handle matters. Everything has a point. And none of it is about getting you anything, it's all about giving. And in that, you give shalom, you receive shalom, and ultimately, you'll have shalom for eternity with Jesus Christ who stood in the gap. And that's what we're going to honor today as we take communion, which is open to all believers in Christ. If you're in Christ, we are all from the same country, the country of heaven. We're all the same race. We're all the same ethnicity. We're all children of God. And that can be a whole diorama of colors and, and shapes and sizes, but we're all brothers and sisters. And so we're going to celebrate that. We're going to celebrate him becoming an exile so that we might come in. 
And as we celebrate that, as we repent, as we confess, and as we really rejoice that he did it for us, that he stood in the gap for us, and that we get to now stand in the gap for others, let that be our thought. The shalom that's represented here, we receive it. Now, how are we going to give it? How are we going to bring shalom to a Babylon? How are we going to live as exiles? How are we going to use our difference? And as we reflect, let's let that be our, our heart's cry today. Let's focus on that. Let's focus on that word shalom as we focus on the body of Jesus Christ.